Okay, so I last week introduced the concept of the promises of God. Some of the most powerful and exciting promises in Scripture are probably not applicable to a lot of Christians that claim them. And uh, so when we start on this, I want to say, um, do, you, do you know about the promises of God? Do you know how they work and how this is a key way to live out Christian theology, to, to live out the Word of God? Um, is It's really important to get hold of what God has said he's going to do and then assume it. He said he would do it. He hasn't done it yet. I'm trusting that he will do it. And so I believe it. For example, 1 Corinthians, and by the way, it's true whether I believe it or not, but when I believe the promise and I'm trusting him, guess what happens? I am stabilized. I have a different perspective. This is the drill of resting our faith in the promises of God. And it is very important to do because God has put himself on record in history for doing certain things. He's going to do some things and he's not going to do other things. Are we in danger of another universal flood? No, God promised that he wouldn't do that. He said, I've set my bow in the clouds. No more attacking with the bow. You can see a picture of it. It's the rainbow. Okay, that, that's God saying he's not going to do a flood. Second so Peter 3, it's with fire. <laughs> the cleansing of planet Earth for its coming resurrection, really, is going to be through fire. And Peter says, the apostle of the Lord Jesus says, it's not going to be with water again. It's going to be with fire. Now, uh, that's a promise, and I expect it. It's not necessarily an encouraging promise, unless I am right now taken with the wickedness and the horror of this world and all the sin and all the stuff, and why doesn't God do something? Well, first, Second Peter 3, I've got a promise. He's going to do something, and it's going to be on his timing. And when we say, well, it's taken too long, Peter addresses that very thing. You can check it out at the end of, of Peter's writing, Second Peter 3 promise he's going to right the wrongs now what about this body for example a promise that applies to every believer in jesus christ about your body is in first corinthians chapter 15 where he says we will not all sleep but we will all be changed and the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet we are going to be transformed into a spiritual resurrection body that lasts forever and is of an eternal quality because this mortal cannot inherit immortality Paul says, we must put on an immortal, spiritual, eternal body, the resurrection body. It's a guarantee. It is a promise from God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Apostle Paul to you. And you need to assume that it is so. Now, what do we do with promises? Well, we say, come on, let's do it. I want it now. I want it now. I want two of them. Please, uh, I've got second day... uh, shipping with my Amazon Prime account. I will have my resurrection body, please, this Wednesday. And uh, that's the problem with us on the promises is God promises we trust him, but we have to keep on trusting him because he hasn't done a lot of the promises that he's made. A lot of times we are going through a situation in time and the promises of God are eternal. And we want the temporal, the time-based promises. What's he going to do now in this situation? Well, One of them is, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus in Philippians 4. I can use that one now. My God shall supply all your needs. Yes, that's a promise that I can sink my teeth into, and it's really going to help me get through, you know, um, paying, paying off the Christmas debt or whatever. You know, you're in debt till August if you... If you spend on credit cards for Christmas, it's a really tragic thing we've turned Christmas into. Now, can we apply 
my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus to our spiritual lives. I want to say, I hope you can. I trust in the Lord that you, first hour Preston citizens, can apply this to your lives. But it's by context. You have to be in the pattern of the Philippians, I think, to apply it. Let's turn there, Philippians chapter 4. On the little note sheet, which we didn't really crank all the way through, I want to start back at promise number 2, Philippians 4.19. And if you know the answers and you filled them in, let's check our work. It's the back of the little, the little note sheet. See, today is, is kind of rough. This, la- this, this is rough as we get started because I had the note sheet for you, but I didn't have it for the online people because we had a hiccup with our connectivity. And so now the online folks see what you saw last week. And um, we're not going to, I mean, this is a review. But Philippians 4.19 is this wonderful promise that you need to claim as you uh, seek to serve God with your material wealth with your concern about the biggest problem we all have, which is, can I pay the bills? Will I be able to afford the, the, the fuel oil to heat my house? Um, you know, the, the big problems, you know, are the kids, are the kids going to be able to, are the kids going to eat and, and be healthy or are they going to get rickets? You know, the big problems in life that we're concerned about. I mean, a lot of people are worried about that, just not here where we live. But the promise is, my God will supply all your needs, 419, all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, let's see if this, by way of review, if you're here last week and someone uh, briefly explained to me or to all of us, what, what is my problem with Christians just throwing that one down and saying he's got me logistically, he's got my financial needs? What's the problem with using that verse when I am strapped for cash? What's the, what's the problem with that as a universal principle of Christian promises? Okay, the problem was context, Mike said. And, uh, and by that, there's, there's, get that mic. Get, the, get that hand mic. Mic up, Mike. Well, the issue is context, and there is a context uh, around which that promise is given, and it has to do with uh, fulfilling... Uh, the mission. Okay. So there's a, there's a missionary context. Now somebody else that isn't one of the deacons or one of the, the chairman of the board of deacons. Can someone else help me with what he means by context where this is a special context? You know you know it. Come on. No? I'm, I'm putting you on the spot. Come on, say it. Say it. You got it. No, just, just speak. You've been doing it all your life. The missionaries were giving money to uh, the apostles, so he was th- thanking them for the gift and saying that since they gave, that God will give them money back. That's kind of, I would be careful about saying it quite that way because we're like, oh, it's a money laundering scheme. It's, a, <laughs> it's an investment strategy. I mean, but, but she, she's right. It's a principle of backfill in context. They have given sacrificially to support the mission. And so Paul is saying, and my God will supply all your needs according to his glory and riches in Christ Jesus. So that's, that's the context. So um, now here's the next thing someone will say to me. This is only applicable in the first century to one church called the Philippians. What's my answer? What's David Roseland's answer uh, from what you've studied with me a little bit? What do you think? Or your answer. If you think that's right, zip it. No, I'm kidding. If you, <laughs> no, no, you're free to speak. But, but what's, what's the problem with saying it doesn't apply to us? 
The Bible is always contemporary. Okay, so the, it was, it, the Bible is always contemporary. It was given to us. We're recipients of what Paul says to the Philippians by the Holy Spirit's gift, and we're in the train of the apostles and the Philippians. So what you find is, yeah, we're Christians, and we start looking at what we have in common with the Philippians. What do we have in common with the Philippians? And I mean, when you're not camping out. We're believers in Jesus Christ. What else? We're, we're called to a mission work. Okay? So we all, all have the same responsibility because the Lord Jesus Christ gave it to his apostles and we're apostolic. That's really the biggest insight. What else do you have in common with the Philippians? Let me give you a hint. This is after the day of Pentecost in AD 33. Yeah. Yeah, they're church-age believers, which means we have what in common? What, what's the big thing that's different? They have, and we have, the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, who is there to fill you with the Word so that you are producing, or He's producing through you, the fruit of the Spirit, the character qualities of Christ, and the capability, be a spiritual gift and otherwise, to love as Christ has loved. The ability to do all that you've been commanded. So they're, they're church-age believers, so are you. These people... These people have no idea about the things we get hung up on. I wonder if you said, so where are you guys on capitalism versus socialism? I wonder what they'd say. They'd say the Roman government owning all the businesses. Are you crazy? But, then they, but if you explain it to them, but if you said isms to them, they wouldn't know what you meant. If you said, so are you guys King James only? <laughs> <laughs> they would say whatever Greek is for huh <laughs> see there are things that we have in common with them and things we don't one thing that we don't have in common with them is that they heard who preach the word of God to them Paul bless your hearts right we are different they had Paul who was gifted as an apostle nobody today is he was a prophet I believe no one today is he was able to heal the sick at one point in Acts 18 and when he's in Corinth they're carrying handkerchiefs from his body or is that Acts 19 handkerchiefs from his body to the sick people and because it touched Paul and it touched them they're healed the church of the holy handkerchief you never see that out there on a church sign Paul's handkerchief Baptist church Please don't, but that would be kind of funny. If you ever see something, take a picture and send it to me. But um, Here's what I'm trying to say. You have things that you're in common with them, the vast majority of things, and there are some things that are different. Like they didn't have the entire scriptures in their hands like we do today. And they didn't have 2,000 years of reflection by God's people in the power of the Spirit on the scriptures. So we have many blessings that they didn't yet have. They have blessings that we don't have. And everybody has to deal with God as our Father and say, God, you're in charge. You're distributing the goods. And so we're thankful and bless you for that, how, how you've situated us. So I'm not jealous of the Philippians that they got to hear from Paul, but I do want to emulate them by matching a pattern that they have. And that's the way this becomes applicable. If you'll hold the place just for a second, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 6. Look at Matthew 6. Verse 19, 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is about security. This is about the bank. This is about your safe. This is about hiding money in the sofa. See, the problem with riches is you've got to hang on on to it. This This is a problem in our house. I like to share with you by example and illustration just to give you a little bit of an insight. And it's, it's also very compelling because it's real. Um, our kids, uh, one of the things I have to say to them as I'm teaching them to do things like help clean or, or work or do whatever, is I have to first say a preliminary instruction. Empty your hands. Empty your hands to help fold the clothes. Empty your hands to help vacuum. Empty your hands to do whatever they need to do that we're, learned, we're training them to do. Why do I have to tell them to empty their hands? Because there are five of them, and when I have something, the only way I can be sure I keep it is if I hold it. And there's always a little tug, a little hurt, a little regret when Daddy makes me let it go because it means it's available. That someone can snag it. And now I've got to provide a secure environment that, no, that's your thing. You can, you know. But we're working through that private property thing where there's, there's an insecurity. I've got to hang on to it. So one of them is learning this. He's walking around with handfuls of little things. And we're like, man, we've got to provide this kid a, a locker, like a foot locker or something <laughs> to keep his stuff in. You know, but it's, it's insecurity. The problem is insecurity, and it's a real problem. And Jesus says, uh, what are you going to do when the most valuable thing that you've worked so hard to get, you finally have that, that silken fabric thing that you wanted, whatever the detail of life is, and then a year later it's moth-eaten? Or, the, or that, that fancy toy that has metal parts and it gets all rusted up. See, it's security. And Jesus is saying, use some common sense here. In heaven, there is none of that. So if all your wealth is in God's hands, it's perfectly secure. Now, what's the problem with that? Functional atheism. I don't believe in God in the moment. I can touch this. I can't touch him. So I don't really believe that he can really secure it. I don't really believe that he's there. And I find that this is a test of my faith. But the passage goes on. Jesus goes on to say that um, the, the problem is the heart. Where your heart is, sorry, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And then he talks about the eye and darkness and light. And then no one can serve two masters in verse 24. You cannot serve God and wealth. And then in verses 25 all the way through 34, the Lord Jesus gives an extended message on what to do about insecurity about material needs. What do you do about insecurity about material needs? Now, why am I preaching this out of Philippians 4? My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's the promise in Philippians 4. Paul is a Christian, and he got the idea from Jesus. And then the saint Jesus is going to say the same thing, and it's going to have the same applicable context where if you're on mission, you can expect your father to take care of you. It's the same concept. Watch what happens. 
For this reason, I say to you not to be worried about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or, what you'll, or your body, so what you'll put on is not the body more than food and the food more than clothing. See, we went from serving wealth to basic needs because that's what money is for. That's what, the, that's what we're worried about. A man, after all, has to eat. We've got to pay the bills. We've got to cover, put, put a roof over the house, all that. It's about, it's about provision. So he says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? So see, there's the need for provision, and then there's our heart, where we are about the need for provision. We're worried. We're anxious. And those are two separate issues. Sometimes, have you ever worried about something, and you found out that it was, you were in like, almost like a simulation? There was no chance of the thing happening that you are worried about? And you're worried about it, and you're worried about it, and you're worried about it, and you find out a week later... I could have saved all that, all that angst, all that anxiety, and just trusted God, and it would have had the same outcome. Sometimes God lets you see that. I think that's how uh, Jesus is teaching this. In your heart, you need to believe that God has you as you uh, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, as you make his issue the first thing. That's the mission. So he says, um, why are you worried about clothing? The lilies of the field grow, they don't toil or spin, yet I say to you in verse 29 that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry about what you'll eat, what we'll drink, what, what we wear for clothing. For the Gentiles, the, all the world, all, everybody knows this is what life is about. They eagerly seek after these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. See, now the world knows it, but they don't know God. Your Father knows that He made you. You need to be clothed and sheltered and fed. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The point of application, really the promise here is verse 33. Seek ye first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Well, what does it mean to seek the kingdom? That's the real theological problem with the way people use this verse. Oh, that means believe in Jesus as your Savior. I think that's a misread on what Jesus is doing in the upper room, dis- or sorry, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount here. He's calling them to a radical lifestyle that recognizes that it's all about the righteousness of God, which is only accessible by grace through faith. And then that, that once you realize that God has this claim on your life, you disciple up. In fact, I think Matthew is two things. It's an explanation to the Jewish Christians, not Jewish unbelievers, but Jewish Christians, how the whole world missed the Messiah of, of Israel, how Israel rejected their Messiah. And the turning point in the book is chapter 12 to chapter 13, and then the parables. Israel rejected the Messiah, and yet he is the promised one who would come and deliver Israel, the king that is coming. So how is it that they, the king came and he was rejected? That's one thing Matthew's doing. Another thing he's doing is explaining what it means to be his disciple. What it means to be his disciple. And discipleship is verse 33. Make it your ambition, your focus, your attention, your priority to be about his things. How do you seek the kingdom today? We are recruiting for those who will rule with Christ in the coming kingdom. You are not in the kingdom in terms of its expression and administration today. But you are citizens of heaven, and you have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And so your identity is a kingdom identity, but it's not on earth being expressed right now. And that difficulty, that little, well, what, what, I mean, 
can we say that therefore the kingdom is how we feel or it's in our hearts or it's, or it's, it's, um, it's just Christendom? No, that's not what the kingdom is and it never was through all of, of world history. God's all, promise has always been a real ruler, a human r- r- ruling on a real throne in real Zion for real ever. <laughs> okay, and it's David's son and that's, that's the, the Lord Jesus Christ. But is he, is he enthroned on David's throne now? Absolutely not. He's seated at the right hand of his father on his father's throne. And there's a difference. And Jesus tells the believers in Revelation 3 that if you overcome, you will sit down with me on my throne like I have sat down with my father on his throne. There's two thrones. There's a rulership promise for believers in this time in which we live who are about our father's business. And so he's telling Israel to be diligent to to make God's issue the first thing seek first the kingdom and his righteousness the way this applies to you church age believers who are by the way the recipients of Matthew the gospel of Matthew is that you recognize God's call in your life is first and foremost and then you execute it with vigor and abandon and you don't say first things first I got to feed the kids first things first I have to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness that means today today on this side of Matthew 28, we have to make disciples of all the nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, okay? By teaching them to keep all that he's commanded. That's the order of the day. That's how you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness today. So we get on mission, we get about his business, and we expect the backfill. We expect him to provide for our needs. That's the attitude with which we go to work. That's the farmer who has to go plow well, till and plow and plant and harvest and, li- and live his life doing this. You know, three steps, repeat, four steps, repeat, four steps, repeat. The farmer that does this goes to the field every day saying, I'm on mission. I'm here to serve God. This is your field. Make me capable of serving you however I do. And I'll do it here on the field, but it's yours. And I'm trusting you. And, um, and by the way, that farmer is looking for humans to disciple He's looking for opportunities to encourage, to exhort, to bear witness to. And doesn't mean he's a preacher. doesn't mean he's necessarily an engaging personality. It means that I'm on mission and I'm seeking for how I can support it. What's the best way that farmer who looks at his farm as God's farm, what's the best way he, in terms of using his skill and his resources, is going to be able to promote the mission? Just one, what's one idea of how he could do it? A farmer sitting on a tractor or, or behind a, a mule team, how, how is he going to advance the mission from his farm? There's no, there's no Christians, to, there's no unbelievers on the farm. But how can you use your farm for God's glory? I know what, let's burn all the fields and build a church. And then send the farmer to seminary and he can learn to work Greek and Hebrew. And that's not it. What, what is, what's the farmer, well, how can he contribute to the mission? Yeah. So be a good farmer, okay? But how can he turn that farming enterprise specifically itself to the mission? Yeah, because he could provide for missionary support like in Philippians because people that preach have to eat. Oh, the farm directly feeds the mission. <laughs> never, never would have thought of that. Right? But see, that's because we don't think about mission the way we're supposed to. We think of, well, the mission's the church people. We're going to talk about that second hour. On the back of your sheet, uh, we're back in Philippians 4.19. It says, the context of Philippians, uh, 
is Philippians 4, 15 through 19. And the observations. What was the first observation, number one, under promise number two? Do you remember? Yeah, this is a promise. Everybody see that? This is a promise right here. Philippians 4.13 is a declarative statement, declarative statement. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's not a promise, but we can take it as a promise if we're going to match pattern with Paul. But this is a promise. Second, it is within a specific historical context. Everybody see that? C-O-N-T-E-X-T. It's from God to the Philippians through Paul. Therefore, it sets up a pattern. That's the most important theological term for applying the promises of God. Make sure you're in the pattern. Now, you can bad pattern match or you can good pattern match. You can do it well or you can do it poorly. You can try to steal something that cannot belong to you. For example, I used last week the illustration of nation. God promises to thrive, to make Israel thrive. So we're a nation in the United States today, and we, we were, had a Christian beginning, um, and so God will make us thrive. Or the cycles of discipline for Israel in Leviticus 26 will apply them to us. And say we, the United States, will go through the cycles of discipline that God promised for Israel who is going to either keep or violate the Mosaic Covenant. And the cycles of discipline are about the covenant that God made with them at Sinai. No, 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 no. You can't pattern match nation and nation like that. However, when God makes a promise to Israel and he says, you're my beloved, you're my son, Israel, you're, my, um, you're the apple of my eye, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to do good things for you. I know the plans for Jeremiah. I know the plans I have for you, for good, not for ill. When you see that promise that God makes to the nation and you say, wait a second, I'm not Israel, the nation, but I am personally born again to new life in Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm united to Jesus Christ. I believe you can take a lot of the promises God makes the nation and apply them once you recognize that they're in force, that he's going to do what he said for Israel, you can apply them to yourself in terms of the essence of God. This is what he does for those he loves. And so, yes, he does have a plan for my life. But be careful about trying to stay nation to nation. That's really bad. That's, not, that's, that's called replacement theology. We don't do that. God has a forever promise, a, a lot of forever promises to his nation, Israel. All right, so... We said pattern. This sets up a pattern for us. Is this promise directly addressed to us? No, it's to the Philippians, but it's a pattern that we can say this is how God operates and we're trusting him. And in your prayer life, Father, I'm trusting you. You said you would backfill the Philippians. You would supply their needs because they had supported Paul and understood the mission. They were seeking your kingdom and righteousness. So I'm doing that and I'm trusting you. That's a really good prayer. I'm trusting, I'm doing this, I'm stepping out on, on faith and doing this. And, um, and don't just say it, make sure it's really true. Don't, don't uh, rationalize it. God will help you see that that's a rationalization when you do it. All right, so slip on down. How can I apply Philippians 4.19? Not everyone who is on mission goes to the mission field. Not everybody goes to the field. You've been in Kiev, you've preached the word in Slovoboja Church, you've preached the word and taught children, young adults, to understand how to handle the scriptures in Slovoboja College. You've never been there physically, but you sent me. It was expensive. You've sent me twice to do it, and therefore you've done it. It's exactly the pattern. 
We've never uh, been to the Minya people in Papua New Guinea. But Wes and Penny Chapel are there with their kids, and we support them. We financially support and underwrite their efforts in a small way, but we have our cut of this, and because we financially support it, we are there with them in spirit, and they are helping these people read their language for the first time. The already long-existing language of the Minya is a only spoken language, and Wes has taught them to reduce that to writing, so now it is a written language. Now it is a written language that has the Bible portions translated into it so you can read Scripture now in Minya. Did you know you're involved in that? That's what you're doing, Preston City Bible Church. So that, that's the idea. We are, we're not in the field, but we're doing the work. Second, <clears throat> the givers advance the mission by blank the sending of the message. Supporting the sending of the message. That's right. Supporting the sending of the message. Then God, number three, what? Resupplies. God resupplies. R-E-S-U-P-P-L-I-E-S. God resupplies the givers so that they can give again or more. I said more, but again, we're good too. We're just fine. Work well. Work well (laughs) also. Once we understand Christ's mission for the church, we become eager to participate in, in it however we can. And that's the, that's the vision that the scriptures cast for us. That's what we need to, to embrace as a church, is that we all have a role here. And corporately, we have a special capability. And, and you get a lot done as a group. So it all goes back to the mission in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. And my question, my challenging question for this little, little discussion was, what is your cut? What's your piece of the mission? Will you do me a favor? Will you consider for this year, for the beginning of the rest of your life, just for today and for every other day, will you start thinking between you and the Lord and talking to him about what is your piece of the mission? If this was a fundamentalist, if this was a fundamentalist church of of one stripe of fundamentalism, you would say, yeah, I give 10% of my income religiously because that's what jesus said or something and then we go well that's not really the bible on giving but uh, a lot of people say yeah it's financial i my cut is financial (laughs) me too all of us that that's right we we're you can't um do the work unless you're eating god just keeps having us eat there's a time to fast but uh, you do it long enough and now we're having a, a funeral for our missionary Okay, so I'm just saying, like, what is besides the financial side? Maybe that's a maybe that's the first thing for you that the financial support of the work. Maybe that's a new thought that you're like, I, I'm actually up in the pulpit with the pastor by supporting financially. I am projecting this word. You know, um, you're underwriting what this church does, everything it does when you support it financially. You're participating. You're owning that. It's a privilege. Um, it's a challenge. It's a, it calls for accountability to me, I mean, and me to you. I mean, it calls for me to be accountable because you're supporting it. Are we doing what we should be doing? And I have always said accountability is, is, is both directions always. Anybody has, anybody can ask me any question. Now, I know I have a facial expression that for sometimes can seem like I'm not happy about the question. You know, I, I can, 
I can look, uh, but that's just my resting face. Uh, <laughs> but I really, I seek to be open and accountable and what, what, what should we be doing? And um, my, I have biblical rationales for how I think about this, and so I'll throw Bible back a lot. Why all this seminary work? Why, why PhD and all that? Why do you need to do all that? Well, I've got a Bible verse, Ephesians 4, 12, and 13. God brings pastors. We need to be able to train them. And, um, and so that's, that's a level of work. That's a level of academic perspective that um, takes, takes some work to get there. So that's my rationale. And I, you know, I could be wrong um, in how that applies, but I don't think I am. And I'm, I'm accountable. Let's talk about it. So that's what I'm trying to say is what's your piece? What's your cut of this work? What are we as a church accomplishing next hour? We're going to talk about a little report of the year, what we've done, what we're, where we're headed in 2019, and uh, what 2018 was about. <clears throat> and uh, really, uh, the mission. It's about the mission. What are we supposed to be doing? We're to make disciples of all the nations. And the Bible is not easy. Verses are easy to understand, some of them. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's easy to understand, isn't it? God will provide your needs because of Jesus, because he's rich in Christ. And he, through Jesus, he's going to provide all your needs. Simple. Except there's a context where that's stated. So thus we need to study. And thus it's, there's a little bit of rigor involved. What's your piece? What's your cut of this mission? The cure for anxiety, Jesus says, is trusting in God and being about his business. The Apostle Paul says the same thing with another promise in Philippians 4. As I close this little study, I want you to look at verse 7, or sorry, verse 6 of Philippians chapter 4, where Paul is issuing general instructions that apply to all people all the time that are Christians. General instructions in Philippians 4 to all Christians all the time. After telling the ladies to to cool it, to work together, to stop making divisions among themselves in verses 1 through 3. He gives a general command that shocks us. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Love to preach that one, but let's move on. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. And then relax. The relax verses of Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Worry for nothing. Doesn't mean stop worrying because you already are. It's not what it means. It means don't do it as a general prohibition. From now on, worry is forbidden to you. You are commanded by the apostle of Jesus Christ not to do it. Worry for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Prayer is when you talk to God. Supplication is when you make urgent, specific requests. Prayer is general. Supplication is specific. If you're wondering, it's important that Paul said both. By prayer, when you talk to him with supplication, urgent, specific requests, let your requests be made known unto God. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The promise is peace. The mechanism for peace is requests with thanksgiving. Sometimes you have to pull the ripcord on this verse. The plane is crashing. You are free falling. You need the parachute to come out and save you. And you need this promise of peace. Some of you need it every day and you need to pull this record every hour of the day. Some of you are going through, and, and we all do at some certain times, but I mean right now some of you are going through hardships that say pull the ripcord, pull the ripcord, we're going to crash and bounce and splat. And what do you need? 
you need to tell God what your requests are with thanksgiving. And that's the part that sounds completely bizarre. I'm facing cancer. Thank you for the privilege of trusting you through this hardship. I want to do the work that you set for me to do. I want to be unimpeded by this medical condition. So let me work through it. Give me strength through it. This is my specific and urgent request. And the promise when I make my specific requests, when I'm, I have cause for anxiety, but I'm commanded not to, I'm, I'm told to go to my father in prayer. That's my command. I'm told to give him thanks as I make my specific requests. And then I'm told there will be an outcome, peace. Now, nowhere in the Bible does this say this is a paradigm for decision-making. <clears throat> It's a promise. Believers, don't run around as stress bonds. Don't be spazzes. We're not supposed to spaz. What I mean by spaz is when we get anxious, when we get worried, when we, when we pinball in our brain this thought that, oh, it's going to all go bad. And we don't have peace. You know when you don't, and so do your brothers and sisters know when you don't have peace. And... We need to relax, but only in him, not in passivity, not in uh, nihilism, not in a disregard of the situation, but in and through the situation. I'm trusting in the Lord with this. I've asked him about this, and I've given him thanks, even for the opportunity to trust him in the hardship. Give thanks at all times for all things, says Ephesians chapter 5. Th- um, uh, constant thanksgiving in First Thessalonians chapter 5. He means when you're anxious and hurting and suffering and you're going through the rigors of a test of your faith, you thank him for it. Because, for example, in uh, James chapter 1, we're told that these hardships bring about endurance and endurance brings about proven character and God is growing you. He's expanding you through the hardship, through the crucible of the suffering. And it's easy to say, I hear you. It's easy to say and it's easy to think, but it's hard to feel when you're hurting when you're scared, when you're worried. And this is not a, a ripcord for uh, first world problems, per se. If you're worried about the internet, whether it's going to be on or off this week, or something silly, it's about, you can bring it for that if that's your level of maturity. But this will go all the way to, they're about to cut Paul's head off. The Roman lictor in 67 AD is about to behead him under Nero's instruction. At the end of his life, he's, he's going to die a young man somewhere around 70. And he's going to have his head cut off. There's nothing wrong with his head or something wrong with his eyes. But he's got plenty of life left in him. They're going to cut his life short. And he's, you know, he's very healthy. Mediterranean diet, always walking. <laughs> Could have gone a lot longer. And they're, and they're going to chop his head off. And he can say, I'm trusting you, Father. My life is yours. This head is yours. This witness is yours. I've apparently done my work. And that's, that's what Second Timothy's about. I've run the race. I'm being poured out as a drink offering on your faith. I know my race is complete. And I know that I will receive the crown of glory because I've been faithful and God is satisfied. Paul could say he knows that about his spiritual life. So this takes you all the way to your death takes you all the way to the greatest fears and struggles and trials you ever, ever encounter. And some of you are thinking, 
why is he closing the, the thing about contextual promises on this general one? Because the truth is, <clears throat> everyone here needs God to supply all your needs. The truth is, everyone here needs the power of the Spirit to do all that God wants you to do in Philippians 4.13. And the truth is that some of you, right now, are in the hardest thing you've ever been through. And you need peace. The peace doesn't mean the trouble goes away. It means you become capable of handling it. And I mean God walks you through it. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed as we break for coffee, Father, we thank you for fellowship, for your word, for the uh, injunctions of Scripture to trust you, for revealing yourself this way, Father, for the privilege we have to rest in you, to relax, to go after the peace that passes all comprehension, that guards our minds and hearts in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for the hardships. We ask that you would strengthen us to encounter them. Make us wise as you promised. Father, all the things that you want to do with us, this is what we're asking for. We know we're praying in accordance with your will. <clears throat> Expand us all in, capable, in capability of love. Expand us all in our perspective of how we can serve you. And Father, challenge us all with how we can participate in your work. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.